You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, we bring back David Stein. For those of you who don't yet know David, he is the host of Money for the Rest of Us, a weekly personal finance podcast with over 20 million downloads. He's also the co-founder of Asset Camp, a fintech platform of dynamic data-driven research tools focused on asset classes. In this episode, we cover his updated assessment of current market conditions and why we should care about current market conditions in the first place, the role international stocks can play in a portfolio and his updated assessment of that, if investors should care if the US has the reserve currency or not, ways in which investors can get exposure to AI, if GDP is an outdated metric and potentially misleading, the role that crowdfunding platforms and alternative assets can play in a portfolio, David's thoughts around living a richer, wiser, and happier life, and much more. This was a fun chat with a lot of great pieces of wisdom from David, so I hope you enjoy it. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. Today, I am thrilled to welcome back my friend, David Stein, to the show. David, great to have you back. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks, Clay. David, since the last time we had you on, we've had plenty of pretty crazy things happening in the markets. We've seen equity markets swiftly start to approach new all-time highs and this is in the backdrop of everyone calling for a big crash in light of the Fed raising rates the fastest it ever has. And then we have people becoming pretty enamored with AI stocks, which we'll be talking about a bit later. I don't want to make you feel old, David, but your experience covering the markets professionally is closing in on 30 years. So I'm grateful to have you on to help people like me, less sophisticated, less uh, experienced investors to better understand what's sort of happening here. So Higher interest rates have been what everyone is talking about over the past year. So very excited to get your updated assessment on current market conditions today. Before we talk about that, I think a good place to start is to talk about why we should care about market conditions in the first place as long-term investors. Right. Well, first, when we think about market conditions, there's many ways to measure that. But you know, fundamentally, as investors, we're managing portfolios. And we have a number of different asset classes, and we under, want to understand what's going on in the markets that could impact those asset classes. And, and foremost, asset class valuations, the price to earnings ratios of stocks, for example, is a type of market condition that we need to be aware of. And so other market conditions would include economic trends, which can impact corporate earnings. And then there's what are be called the market's temperature, which, which we call internally market internal. So the level of fear and greed in the market and what's that average investor doing. And so when we look at where we are with market conditions and why they're important is, is essentially is to keep us grounded. Knowing where things are helps us stay invested and it keeps us from sort of being flipped around as something new comes along. So just you know, we look at, I formally look at market conditions once a month. I've done it as an institutional investor since the early 2000s, just really understanding where we are. And in fact, I know Clay, you discussed Howard Marks' book, Mastering the Market Cycle, and he, he uses some of the same language. He recently had an editorial in the Financial Times, and 
And one of his points is, is the market is generally somewhere in the middle. It, it's rare that it, it's at an extreme. And, and we've seen that in our work. We've done a, a monthly investment conditions and strategy report for over a decade. And only 10% of the time, it's really been overall conditions, asset class valuations, economic trends, market internals. About 10% of the time, you get more of an extreme where it's in our parlance is red, so more bearish or, or green more bullish because most of the time we're sort of in the middle. And so we're sort of weighing different elements and ultimately most of the time decide, hey, we want to stay invested. This is not a time to move significantly in or out of the markets, stay close to our long-term targets. And I think so many people are confused by sort of what's happening. I think this really stems from what happened in 2020, where we saw a big disconnect between the economy and the stock market and the real estate market as well. You know, people were really confused because the economy shut down and then now people kind of expected that in light of interest rate hikes that, you know, markets would be in for a world of trouble. So, what's your take on market conditions today? Uh we're recording today at July 21st, 2023, and you just recently put out your monthly report that you just mentioned. So, what's your take on current market conditions and then what are you keeping an eye on? So, you know, overall when we look at across the board, we're, we're sort of low neutral. So in our models, we're slightly underweight stocks, but it's been an incredibly fascinating three years. You mentioned the pandemic and just, and I know we'll talk a little bit about the Fed later, but just the sheer amount of cash that was created, liquidity through a combination of massive federal budget deficits in the US and quantitative easing. At the same time, we shut down the economy. So we had the money supply M2, which is essentially checking accounts, cash, retail money, market mutual funds, went from $15 trillion to over $23 trillion in about a year. That, that's money and purchasing power going out into the economy. And, and in that environment, why do we have inflation? Because the economy had shut down, supply chains had got interrupted, yet now there's massive cash going into meme stocks, going into real estate and going into crypto, going into watches. And we're just working our way through that. And the, the Federal Reserve essentially was caught off guard, the, just the, the sheer amount of inflation that we've seen. And, and not that I'm saying, well, I know better than the Fed. The reality is we don't know exactly how long this inflation period will last. And so when we talk about people sitting around waiting for a recession because the Federal Reserve's raising interest rates, the most aggressive it's raised them in several decades. But this is sort of a blunt tool. And because of all the cash that was in the system, the savings that people had, the fact that we had a decade of very low interest rates, and so businesses and individuals, homeowners had locked in very low mortgages, it's taking a very long time for higher interest rates to impact the economy. And it's not certain that we'll even get a recession. We're, we're already seeing inflation, and especially after the most recent report, core inflation is coming down. And maybe the Fed will get incredibly lucky and, and pull off a, this sort of Goldilocks economy where inflation comes down and we never enter into a recession. We don't know. Typically, there's an 18-month lag before interest rates really start to bite the economy. We're starting to see the economy slow. And one of the, the things that we look at, the measures, is what are known as purchasing manager indices or PMIs. And this, this is data that 
basically business surveys around the world that the, the statisticians ask businesses, well, how's business? What about your new orders? What's your inventory like? What are your employment plans? What kind of price increases are you seeing? And it's normalized to where 50 is, and it's done at every different country. They do manufacturing, they do services. So when it's above 50, that's generally an expanding economy. When it's below 50, it's economy that's slowing or contracting. And we're at 48.6. And so we've been hovering around 50, but it it's getting slightly worse, but it's not as if, and I'm talking globally now, because we look, you know, in our work, we look at, across the globe and then look at what percentage of countries are expanding basically above 50 or below 50. So when we look at the PMI data, it's sort of low neutral. It's not flashing recession. And I think the takeaway is, is there's a balance of things or multiple measures that we can look at. This has been a recession that analysts have been calling for two years, and mainly because the yield curve went inverted with longer term rates lower than, than the shorter term rates. And that often can lead to recession, not every time, but we're waiting around. In the meantime, it's been a great time to stay invested in risk assets because we've been rewarded for doing so. That was, this was not a time to run for the hills and not have exposure to risk assets such as stocks, non-investment grade bonds and others. You mentioned the massive increase in the money supply and sort of the effect and how that's kind of helped things keep going sort of as the Fed. They're really doing a balancing act here and they're trying to crush inflation without crushing the economy, as many people have said. And the recent inflation number for US CPI came in at 3%. And I believe we're seeing higher inflation in places like Europe, and different areas of the world. I'm curious what your sort of assessment is on how well the Fed has done in managing inflation over the past couple of years after you know inflation rose to around 9%. Well, the Fed was embarrassed, right? They, they are acting, trying to save the reputation, you know, a reputation of low interest rates, low inflation. Either they won't say it, but the fact that inflation got up to 9%, that's embarrassing. Now there's reasons for it, et cetera, they have raised rates very, very aggressively. When you think about it, I mean, it's within 15 months, we've gone from zero to where it looks like they'll raise the policy rate, the Fed funds rate, another 25 basis points in their next meeting. And now we're close to five and a half percent if they do that. That's in a year. And so when we talk about the impact on the economy, that takes time to work through. But the good news is, is that, for example, core inflation, the annual rate of core inflation in the June report was a 20-month low at 4.8%. And more importantly, inflation is made up of hundreds of different products, trying to, you know, basically this basket. But a third of inflation, the CPI measure, is, is housing related. So it's rents on apartments, but it's also what homeowners think they could rent their house for. And they survey. They survey every six months and they ask a bunch of homeowners, what do you think you, you could rent your house for? And then they compare that to the prior survey. Well, home prices in the 20 city Schiller index are, is down or to flat over the past year. Home prices are not appreciating as much as they were. And so now eventually with, with a really big lag, homeowners suddenly realize, well, maybe I can't rent my home for 20% more than I thought I could two years ago. And so that's starting to flow through the inflation numbers. So there is a lag. Inflation's coming down. Hopefully that will allow central banks to pause. And then once they pause, because interest rates, longer term interest rates are a function 
uh, expectations for shorter term rates. And so if, if investors believe bond market participants that shorter term rates will be higher, then that pushes up longer term rates. Once the Fed pauses or other central banks indicate they're going to pause, that can bring down the real rate of interest that, that's baked into, for example, the yield on the 10-year government bonds. Now, there's, there's other factors there. Inflation expectations are built in those interest rates. And then surprisingly, and this is what I find incredibly fascinating, there's something within interest rates called the term premium. So it's additional compensation that bond investors demand for uncertainty regarding inflation and uncertainty regarding central bank actions. And that term premium at times has been 1% to 2%. So above what expectations were for short-term interest rates and above what inflation expectations were, there was another 1% to 2% just because of uncertainty, whether the Fed could pull it off. Well, the, the term premium has been zero for a number of years now, which indicates high confidence in the Federal Reserve, despite the embarrassment of the 9% inflation. So we'll see. They do their best, I mean, but their reputations are on the line. But th like any investor, they don't really know what's going to happen. Despite having hundreds of PhDs on their staff, inflation still got away from them. Approaching the summer of 2022, when the rate hikes really started to pick up really quickly. And you've mentioned on your show previously that it generally takes 18 months for the changes in interest rates for that impact to sort of flow through the economy. Can you talk about that and how that works and how you're viewing that today now that we're in July 2023? So it just works in the fact that people or corporations that want to borrow money to fund projects, if interest rates are higher, the hurdle rate that they need, the potential return of a particular capital project is higher. And so there, there could be less investment in the economy, which can slow the economy. At the same time, consumers are potentially less willing to go out and, and buy a car because you know, with the higher interest rates, the, the payment's so much higher. And so just you know, as rates flow through, people are less willing to borrow. And much of the economy is based on borrowing because people accelerate that, that future purchasing power into the present and they go out and buy stuff or they invest in things. And so, but there, there is a lag as people, in, as I mentioned, they've had savings in place and many have been able to lock in lower rates. So the lag potentially is even longer now because people don't need to refinance. Look at the, the home market. One reason home prices haven't cratered is due to a lack of supply because people have locked in you know, in our case, we have a 3% mortgage interest rate on our mortgage in, in Tucson, and we're not going to move because we don't want to give up our 3% mortgage. And that's played out across the economy. And so there definitely is a lag, but that doesn't mean we have to have a recession. And even if we do have a recession, because there isn't really the excesses that we saw with the great financial crisis in terms of, of debt bubbles, households are in better shape, corporations are in better shape. It could be a very, very mild recession and the markets are forward-looking and may in fact already be looking through the recession given you know, all their excitement with AI and, and other developments. I believe you mentioned that the temperature of the market in the economy is around average. So we're not in a sort of euphoric phase. We're not in a depression type phase. 
What are the main indicators you're sort of looking at to gauge the temperature of the market, equity market specifically? So we look at, in terms of earnings growth, we're looking at you know, what are expectations for corporate earnings. And if we look at that, corporate earnings expectations actually have been increasing for the last six months. And this is globally. So analysts are, are saying, basically raising what they think earnings will be over the next year. This is sort of a bottom-up analysis. And then we combine it into, you know, look at it on an index level. So that's one thing. I've mentioned the PMI data that you know that hasn't fallen off a cliff. Now, other things that we look at is just, as I mentioned, that level of fear and greed with markets. And so when we combine all the things that we look at, yeah, we would say that we're sort of low neutral. Like this is not a horrible environment. Now we're monitoring to see if the recession comes, but we don't think it'll be very deep. At the same time, we've been monitoring inflation and inflation and core inflation, as I mentioned, the, the shelter component is coming down. And there's, you know, aside from the shelter component, there are many areas that didn't haven't even seen increases. And so on the economic front, most much of it is good news. So not fearful news. And so we, we consider that a good thing. One of the things I think a lot of investors maybe underappreciate or maybe overlook is the role that international stocks can play in a portfolio. And you've been pretty vocal about you know the important role that international stocks can play in a portfolio. And one of the big reasons for that is just the difference in the valuations between the two different markets. You know, you in many markets you're able to get essentially more bang for your buck. So can you talk about the role? that international stocks can play in a portfolio. And then I'm also curious how you weight the two. So we are very much in favor of understanding what's driving markets. And so part of that is the equity market. And so if we take the US stock market, for example, it's returned 12.2% annualized over the past decade. But we can deconstruct that, break it down into the drivers. So the dividend yield, the cash flow, the, the percentage of profits or the profits that companies are paying to shareholders, that contributed 1.9 percentage points to that 12% return. The earnings growth grew at 6.9. So corporate earnings grew at 6.9. So these things are additive. So we can add the dividend yield plus the earnings growth. And then we care about you know, what are investors paying for that, that cash flow and earnings. And if we look at the PE of the US market, over the past decade. So 10 years ago, the, the price to earnings ratio was 16.6. Now it's 23.6. So close to four percentage points of that 12% return was because investors bid up stocks and are willing to pay more for stocks. So, so combined, and if we back out that 4%, I mean, the US stock market would be closer to 8%. Now, if we contrast that with the world, so developed market outside of the US, the dividend yield contributed 3.1%. And so dividend yields outside the US are twice as high as the US. The earnings growth slower. So it grew at 5.2% versus 6.9% for US market. But wasn't a tailwind for non-US stocks was valuations. Valuations actually got a little cheaper. It went from 15.8 PE a decade ago to 15.4 today. And so that cost 30 basis points of return. And then we've had a decade where the US dollar has strengthened about 20% versus a basket, basically the rest of the world. And so that was a two and a quarter percent drag per year because the dollar got stronger. And we care about why things happen. And when we say, why did non-US lag the US stock market by 
seven percentage points over the past year. Two percent was because of currency, the strengthening dollar. A little bit was because earnings growth were a little slower. The dividend yield was higher for non-US, so that should have helped, but it was the valuation increase for US stocks was the, really a huge driver, close to four percentage points of additional return because stocks got more expensive going forward. And, and so that's backward looking. We care about, well, where are we today? Well, we're sitting here with US dividends, as I mentioned, half as much as non-US. So one and a half percent dividend yield for the US, 3%, 3.2% for non-US. If we assume that earnings growth has been a same, will be in the decade ahead, will be the same as it's been in the previous decade, we basically get a very similar return with non-US growing a little slower at 5% earnings growth, with US growing their earnings at 7%, often due to buybacks and more technology. But that gives you a return of roughly 8.5% for each. And so I'm overweight non-US in my portfolio or adaptive model portfolio examples are, because when we look at expected returns, they're similar to the US. But if we actually had the dollar headwind that we've had with a dollar weakened a little bit, that actually helps non-US stocks because many foreign corporations borrow in US dollars. And so if you have a, a period where the dollar is strengthening, it's more expensive for them to pay the interest on that debt in the local currency or to service it. And so we actually see a negative impact, not only just because of the pure currency impact, but just from an economic standpoint, as companies struggle to service their dollar debt, their foreign companies. And so if we actually saw the currency weaken, that could potentially lead non-US to outperform US over the next decade. And if we see a repricing of non-US stocks where they get closer to what US are paying for, that would be, you would see a positive valuation adjustment. So when we look at the overall global stock market, it's right currently it's 62% US stocks, 48% or 38% non-US stocks. And so at a minimum, if you're just going to be neutral to the market, you should have close to 40% of your stock exposure in non-US stocks. And, and if you don't, then you're you're saying you're home more probably more home country biased and believe the US will outperform. And then you, which is fine. We can believe that. We just have to understand why. Like is it because earnings are going to grow even faster or be, but it, it's understanding the drivers so that we when we talk about being grounded in investment conditions, we don't want to invest blindly. We want to know what has to happen for our particular investment thesis to work out. And then if that includes overweighting US stocks, then we ought to be very clear that we think the US will grow their earnings much faster than the rest of the world and the, the other aspects that I discussed. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, 
Partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So in studying what is driving markets, and we see investors sort of, for lack of a better term, piling into the U.S. markets. Some may believe it's a safer place to park your money relative to other countries or other drivers. I'm curious whether the role the U.S. plays in being the reserve currency, whether that plays a factor in you know, considering this U.S. versus non-U.S. allocation and determining the weighting, or does the currency reserve status not really matter at all in your mind? Well, nobody elected the U.S. to have the reserve currency. That's a bottom-up phenomena. So most trade is still conducted in U.S. dollars. I mentioned uh, the euro dollar, the, the sheer amount of borrowing that is done in U.S. dollars. Like nobody is telling these corporations overseas to borrow money in U.S. dollars. In fact, if I was an overseas corporation or at least definitely a household, I would not be borrowing. Like my mortgage is not in a foreign currency. It's in the currency that I'm earning money. But for whatever reason, because of attractive interest rates, businesses borrow in US dollars. And as I mentioned, that does have an impact because when economies are slowing, there's often a flight to quality, which tends to be to the US because of the reserve currency status. But it, it isn't anything special. It's just a bottom up decision, person by person, business by business, how trade's conducted. Now, back in the 40s, I mean, there were obviously some structural things that contributed to the US dollar being the reserve currency. But it's sort of something that's going on in the background, other than to recognize that over the past decade, the dollar got stronger and that hurt non-US returns. I, I would just be content if it just held its own. And if we look at where the dollar has been, so the US dollar, the long-term trend is actually weak for a weaker dollar. 
So the US dollar peaked relative to non-dollar currencies. Uh, this is the, the dollar index, the Dixie essentially, 167 in 1985, so super, super strong dollar. It hit 133 in 2002. And then the most recent high was last October at 123. And so even though the dollar strengthened 20%, it's not getting to where it was back in the 80s or even the early 2000s. Now we're at 115. And so over time, and as some trade moves away from the dollar and people realize that, wow, maybe I would rather invest in Japan where the stocks are much, much cheaper or some other countries. And so you get capital flows into non-dollar assets, which can put some downward pressure on the dollar. So the dollar does influence it, but the reserve currency status in and of itself, it's a bottom-up phenomena with flows of dollars and non-dollars going all over the world. But the US has some advantages. It's the deepest market. It's a country where we run massive trade deficits. And if you run a trade deficit, that means there's dollars going all over the world that people can use and spend and borrow from. And so there's the, these are sort of the underlying macro mechanisms, but it isn't top-down decisions. It's bottom-up. And it'll be a while before the US dollar is not a reserve currency, but that doesn't mean the dollar can't weaken over time consistent with its long-term trend. And that would be beneficial to non-dollar assets, including international stocks. And since we're talking about the drivers of returns, you've spoken extensively about the importance of diversification. And many investors out there are heavily concentrated in the US. When looking at the S&P 500, to use as an example, we've seen the top companies, specifically the top seven, really drive the returns year to date, at least. We've seen, uh, as of May 2023, the top seven companies essentially accounted for all of the year to date returns. And then when I take a look at what's in the S&P 500 at the time of this recording, the top seven companies now comprise of around 28% of the index. I'm curious, how do you think about you know, the larger concentration with, within just a select few number of companies. And if there was a point where these companies became so large that further diversification within a portfolio was prudent. Well, I think further diversification in U.S. stock portfolio is prudent now. And so if we look at, you know, going back to the drivers of that analysis, you know, those big cap companies are growth companies. The U.S. growth index returned 15.5% annualized over the past decade. It outperformed, it basically performed double the U.S. value index, which returned 8.3%. And if we look at why, sure, earnings growth were faster for growth stocks, 7.7% versus 4.6% for value. But the biggest component is six and a half percent annual return contribution because U.S. growth stocks got more expensive. The PE a decade ago was 19.8. Today, it's 37.2. So think about that. Six and a half percent of that 50% return is just because investors are bidding up those big cap stocks, as you mentioned. In that environment, I think it's appropriate to have some small cap value exposure, which surprisingly actually had higher earnings growth. And I was shocked when I saw this in our data of nine, over 9% over the past decade. But its valuation went from a PE of 19.6 down to 14.2. So if even if you just add whatever, 10, 15% of US stock allocation to small cap value, 
you're basically getting a higher yield of two and a half percent higher. Let's say, you know, it's unlikely, I think, small cap value return have earnings worth of 9%. But the historic five-year average earnings growth for small cap value is 6%. So you have 2.5% dividend yield and 6% earnings growth. That's an 8.5% return for small cap value. If they don't get more expensive, if we get a more basically closer to the average, the average PE for small cap value over time is over 20. We're at 14.2. So there is that potential boost if small cap value got more expensive. And that's why diversification makes sense. But in understanding sort of where we are, the market temperatures we talked about, what is the dividend yield for the different areas of the market? What is the potential earnings growth? What are analysts expecting? And, and what are current valuations? Because that's the math that drives investing. And that's what we need to be well schooled in. Thank you for expanding on that. That's a very useful framework to think about how investors can be more prudent in the way they're uh, putting together a portfolio. I want to transition here to talk a little bit about AI. Seems to be what so many people are focused on in 2023, you know, especially uh, looking at the popularity and the rise of chat GPT and then the meteoric rise in the stock price of NVIDIA, which is up over 300% from its October 2022 lows. And I just recently saw that Elon Musk during his Q2 earnings call, he mentioned that Tesla's demand for NVIDIA chips is so high that NVIDIA simply can't keep up with that demand. And Tesla essentially is going to purchase whatever hardware that NVIDIA can deliver to them. For investors that want exposure to AI because of the obvious enormous potential, but they also don't want to get caught up in a bubble, essentially, how do you think about getting exposure to it? Well, the, the primary way, and I recently did an episode on AI, and it's important, this is meaningful. And it's only been six months, seven months, eight months, I guess, since ChatGPT comes out. But to invest in it, first off, invest in yourself, use it. It's eye-opening. When I do a, a search right now, if it's not something recent, but if I just want to learn something or understand something, I'll ask ChatGPT because I don't have to see ads, at least currently, and I pay for the premium version and the information is distilled. And so when you talk about AI, there are business models that are going to be positively impacted and negatively impacted. Google, which is one of those top seven companies, they're they call it a code red because of the potential or the threat of AI to their advertising business because people suddenly aren't searching Google and they're just searching AI to get information in a clear fashion. And not that there's not issues with AI, but I'm saying, you know, as I see it, it can fundamentally change the creation for particularly professionals and just, just something like chat GPT, and which means that they become more productive software developers. We have a, a software developer that's a member of our community. And he said, chat GPT has doubled his productivity. It's writing documentation for his code. It's putting scaffolding in place as he builds out code. Now he has to monitor what it produces, but it's like this, this virtual assistant that has doubled his productivity. If that goes through the economy, that boosts earnings growth, which means to participate if we just own the global stock market, we'll participate in AI. Now, if you go out and I say, I want to participate by buying NVIDIA, that's much more risky because when you purchase an individual stock, 
there's a price there and that price is based on the consensus of investors all the buyers and sellers say that nvidia should be worth 300 percent more than it was a year ago which means for that stock to go up nvidia has to do better than what everybody expects the consensus and that's why i generally prefer to invest in index funds etfs occasionally an active fund but the reason why is i, I want a basket of securities I don't want to be betting on whether something's going to do better than expected. If I have a basket of securities or an index funds, some will do better, some will do worse and disappoint. But in aggregate, the performance will be driven by those drivers I've already discussed, the dividend yields, the earnings growth, the change in valuations. And AI will proliferate throughout the economy, and that will benefit all stocks, both US and non-US over time. And so that would be buy the Vanguard Total World Stock Index Fund, e ETF, VT. And you can participate in AI that way. And you already have. If you owned it, you benefited with NVIDIA making up roughly 3 to 5% of, of that particular ETF. Yeah, it makes sense. And a lot of people are talking about how some people are even sort of afraid where you know, the top companies might, you know, extract a lot of the benefit from AI and, you know, having a lot of the data and having a lot of the technology behind it. You're absolutely right. Like this is not a technology where little tiny startups are are benefiting because of the the huge cost it takes to train these large language models. It's incredibly expensive, and so it is the bigger cap companies, at least for now, that are benefiting. And again, instead of trying to pick out which particular one, if you just own a size weighted or a capitalization weighted index fund, you're participating and. Now there's other ways to do it, but that would be the simplest and most direct and just accept the fact that it, this potentially could be life-changing, at least grow the economy faster because of greater productivity for workers if they're suddenly able to produce twice as much work than or output than, than they did before. And there's some debate about the long-term effects of AI, one of which I've been really pondering is how it may impact our current financial system. For example, if AI pushes down the costs of many goods and services, then that would lead to deflation, all else equal. And since we live in an inflationary financial system, then in my mind, currency debasement would be something that's necessary to offset that deflation. And one example I sort of think of is just currently I pay an accountant a good sum of money to go and do my taxes for me each year. And maybe eventually there's an AI software that can do it for a fraction of the cost for me and not have me, you know, drive over to an office a few times every single year and sign all these papers and whatnot. So I'm curious if you've considered the long-term impacts of AI on our financial system overall. Well, first off, there basically is, I mean, there's TurboTax, right? So you don't have to go to your accountant now. And so why do we, why do I pay my accountant? One, I trust him and the taxes are complicated. And so AI is, in my view, not going to replace highly trained professionals who are creative that are trustworthy. You're going to replace less creative professionals that are just churning out things that AI could churn out. Personal finance articles, for example, or investing articles. Like there's going to be so much content out there, average content. Why? Because AI models are trained on the average that's out there. And so they are, by definition, somewhat average in terms of their creativity. 
But the, as you mentioned, the, the economy is naturally inflationary because the money supply keeps increasing because of the banking system. When banks make loans, what does a bank do? It puts money in a checking account if you're a borrower, and it doesn't have to go find that money through the magic of accounting. It just puts a loan receivable on its balance sheet. And so there's these inflationary pressures just as the economy grows and as households and businesses borrow more money. And then if you've got a, the government running a budget deficit and the central banks going out and buying bonds, essentially monetizing the debt, that in and of itself creates money, as we saw, going the M2 going from 15 trillion to over 20 trillion. So that you have this inflationary push. But then, as you point out, there's deflation. There's a natural deflation aspect of things getting cheaper or more efficient and more productive. And those work together. And generally, as I see it, and, and it could be disinflationary, which is, is sort of a combination of two. It means inflation rates are not as high as they would be because of the deflationary impact of AI and other technologies. But because the system itself is built on an ongoing increase in the money supply, that's inflationary. So ideally, we'll just have lower inflation than we would, which is actually good news because we've had 20 years of low inflation up until post-pandemic. And we've already discussed why. It's, it was the money creation combined with the capacity constraints, having shut down the economy, just taking along to start producing goods and services in the supply chain again. It's quite an interesting topic, and it's one I'm super interested to watch play out over the long run, over the many years to come. And I've also heard debate around GDP being, say, an outdated metric or, for lack of a better term, or something like misleading, maybe. I pulled this idea from Jeff Booth's great book, The Price of Tomorrow, and to help explain what I mean by this, you can think about how much value Apple products provide to people. You think about the Mac, the iPhone. So many people in the US I know, you know are going to purchase Apple products no matter what because they add so much value to their lives. Or you can think about, you know, like we've already talked about, how technology and AI, its role is to be deflationary in a way. And its role is to, and you think about entrepreneurs too, their job is to make things better, faster, cheaper, and increase the wealth of society through that. So I think that kind of conflates with the idea of we need to have continuously increasing GDP, whereas AI is sort of fighting that in a way. I'd love to get your take on whether you think GDP is maybe an outdated metric or is this the wrong way of thinking about it? First off, let's define GDP. So gross domestic product is the monetary value of the goods and surfaces produced. So it's the output. What is produced? That's all it is. That's what's measured. What is the dollar value of what's produced? Now, when the government estimates what that is, they, you can estimate what's produced based on what people spent on goods and services, but you can also base it on the income received. And GDP grows because the population is increasing or that population of workers is producing more with less. They're getting more efficient and more productive. So if you talk, go back to that software developer, that developer, because of AI, is able to produce more and that leads to greater productivity and that would grow GDP if he's actually creating more software. Now, on the other side, there's people have to buy the stuff. 
if they're not going to produce it, and that's I think that's where you're getting at. If there's a surplus of things, and and where I don't think GDP is where there's a flaw. Well, we don't even call it a flaw. It's just GDP just measures the dollar value of what's produced. It doesn't measure well-being. It doesn't measure happiness. And there was a Scottish philosopher, James Maitland, that had, had a great example. He wrote about this around 1800. And he distinguished what he basically called wealth, which was the exchange value, the monetary value of things, what's basically being measured in GDP. What's the monetary value of what's produced? But then he said, he talked about abundance. Abundance is things that aren't necessarily scarce. They're, they're useful, they're, they're delightful, but there's not a scarcity of it. The GDP is basically based on scarcity, demand and supply. But the example we gave, if, if somebody realized if you just ate one kernel of corn, that your life expectancy could increase by 100 years. The, the impact of well-being would be amazing. But what would be the price impact of corn? It probably wouldn't change that much because it's so abundant. And so we can't, GDP measures what's produced. It doesn't measure abundance and it doesn't measure well-being. And we know that because there are areas of the world that have as high a life expectancy as the US, the, the people are just as happy, but that country's GDP per person is 20% of what the US is. So just producing more doesn't lead to well-being and happiness. And so I, you know, I'm fine with how GDP is measured. The part that worries me a little bit that we don't capture adequately in that metric is the cost of producing. In other words, we measure the value it's produced, but if you know, what's the cost to the planet? If we're producing in developed countries at a level that if the entire world produced at the same amount of cement and steel and clothing, it would take three to four as many planets to do that. And so maybe technology can solve that, but we ought to be measuring as part of our output calculation, what is the cost to the natural system, the ability to produce as a world, all these things that we produce. Very interesting. A lot to take in and sort of think on there. I wanted to transition here to chat about crowdfunding platforms. We've chatted about a number of these sort of platforms on the show here. And I think it'd be really beneficial to our listeners to chat about some of the things you should think through when talking about these sort of platforms and considering maybe what sort of role they play in a portfolio as well. So definitely want to get your take on what your thoughts are on how reliable some of these platforms can be and how we might utilize them in a portfolio. Of course, many people are probably going to think of all of the cryptocurrency platforms specifically as they've sort of been the poster child of investment platforms that have gone bust and bankrupt. And I'm sure many of our listeners are aware of that sort of risk. I'd like to get focused more in this discussion on platforms that are more non-cryptocurrency. You can think about art, real estate, private debt. What's your take on the role these sort of crowdfunding methods, how they play in a portfolio? Well, they selectively can be beneficial because they can give us access to investments that we typically aren't available in the public market. So it could be a, a private real estate transaction. It could be a piece of art. It could be a real estate backed loan. That the key, I mean, a platform basically is bringing in investors and then it's, it is sourcing investments that those investors can invest in. Where I don't think investors appreciate as much is what is the structure of that investment. 
And so we recently did an episode on, on Peer Street. So Peer Street was a crowdfunding platform that investors could come in and basically back debt that was collateralized by real estate. And so these were typically the borrowers were home flippers or somebody remodeling. So they're looking for, these are called hard money loans, basically looking for some short-term financing to fix up a house, fix up an apartment, and either sell it, or once it's fixed up, they have renters in to go get more traditional type mortgage. So this started in 2013. They, they've been around, but what most people didn't realize, and, and frankly, I didn't realize in the first couple of years I invested, at one point I had 2% of my net worth on Pier Street. And then an attorney that's a member of our, our PLUS member community pointed out that, look at the structure that you're investing, you're not investing in the loan, you don't have the collateral, you're investing in a mortgage dependent note. You have an unsecured liability with Peer Street. And so if Peer Street goes bankrupt, you're going to be in line with all the other unsecured creditors. You're, you don't get the real estate to go sell. That's on the other side of the platform. <laughs> you're in this unsecured debt in a venture capital-backed company that doesn't provide any transparency. And so when we invest on a crowdfunding platform, we don't get transparency. I'm BlockFi, cryptocurrency lender. We, have we had no transparency as to their financial situation. And it turns out, they didn't do so well and they went bankrupt. And so then you have all these unsecured creditors. Peer Street went bankrupt a month ago. And so after, and I warned about this back in early 2018, and I let my loans run off because of the risk of having an unsecured liability. And so when it comes to crowdfunding platforms, there's ways to get around this. So more often than not now, the platforms will set up either a special purpose vehicle. And so that particular investment is shielded from the corporate assets if the corporation goes bankrupt and somebody else will take over, or it could be a registered fund structure. So it's like a, a private mutual fund effectively. And so those assets are custodied separate from the crowdfunding platform's own assets, or it could be actually a registered security. So we think about Masterworks and art. Every piece of art sold on Masterworks is its own security outright custodied and so you're, you're not exposed to a corporate entity where you don't have any transparency on their viability. And, and most of these crowdfunding platforms are still early stage. And so they're very dependent on venture capital backing. And that's what happened with Peer Street. They're, the mortgage market collapsed as interest rates went up. And so they didn't have enough money to operate. And they were getting money from venture capital firms, which have been much more reticent to invest in these companies. And so you're seeing it sort of their capital starved. And if these businesses don't have a profitable business model, then they're going under. And that's what happened with Peer Street. But the key then is, you know, what is the structure of the investment you're purchasing on a platform? And with the cryptocurrency, it wasn't separate. They commingled it with the corporate assets. And when those platforms went under, people lost their funding or they lost their funds or most of them. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day -day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? 
So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one and actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joints range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now. 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. One of the terms you mentioned that sort of struck me and took me by surprise was the term blitz scaling. Essentially, the way I interpret it as these companies are VC backed and they have to essentially grow, grow, grow. And when they aren't growing as investors wanted them to, then eventually they just could get shut down and go bankrupt. Can you talk more about that? That's basically what venture capitalists do in today's environment. They, or at least over the past 10 years, they are, they're growing for market share. 
And so the, the typical private company will stay private for 12, 13 years. And even when they go public, they still haven't figured out a profitable business model because they're, it's almost like a Ponzi scheme. So they, they build up these companies, they invest money, and then right before they go public, they'll, let's say it's a, an advertise, personal finance website that makes money from affiliate deals. If somebody buys a credit card or, or whatever, they just advertise like crazy, you know, running a deficit, losing money, but growing market share. And then the thing goes public. And then, then the company has to figure out a profitable business model. And more often than not, they don't. And then the share prices crash. That's what blitzscaling is. It's this process that we're going to do anything it takes to build market share and then eventually either another private company will buy it at a higher valuation or they'll go public. And you know, unfortunately, the public suffers from that. Well, the public benefits like Uber for many years. It was super cheap to take an Uber or a Lyft mm -hmm. because it was effectively being subsidized by venture capitalists. Now that you know, Uber, I believe, yeah, I believe Uber is public. They have to be profitable. And so they've had to raise prices. And so it's not as cheap. So from a from a use perspective, it can be very, very inexpensive for us because the, the prices don't affect an economic reality because they're, they're being subsidized by venture capitalists and the limited partners that invest in, in venture capital. And so, but from a, you know, buying an IPO is typically doesn't work out. If you're buying, well, if you can get an early allocation and there's a bump, then that's great. Then you can make money. But if you're a long-term investor in IPO, the exception of, of it being a profitable investment or the, the idea that it, it'll be profitable, it's actually very rare. Despite, I mean, there's always the big, well, Google, that was popular. Amazon, that went well. Most IPOs fall below whatever their stock price was. And even more so today because they don't have profitable business models when they go public and they have to figure it out on the fly. I can't help but think of this. Uh, Howard Marks calls it the sea change. Interest rates aren't at zero anymore. Now they're at, call it 5% or whatever. And I just think about, you know, is the case of Pier Street where this VC funded company goes bankrupt? Do you see this sort of these one off situations where, you know, a VC funded company just happens to go under? Or is this something where we're going to start to see it uh, maybe pick up and be more of a trend over the next few years with higher interest rates? Oh, I, I think you're, you'll see more of a trend. There are 16,000 private companies that are venture capital backed. And the competition for capital is ever more intense. The amount of VC funded companies in the past year has gone, like the actual capital invested fell 50%. And so in some ways it's good because suddenly these companies realize, oh, we actually have to figure out how to make money on our own without being subsidized by venture capitalists. But Many won't, so you'll see more close. But the, I mean, these are they're small companies in many regards. So it's not like it's going to crater the economy. But if you are invested in venture capital, the returns will they're certainly going to be lower than they were because the the difficulty to exit. They're not able to sell the private companies or the the VC backed companies at a premium. And the IPO market, at least currently, is, is not the public market's not really receptive to IPOs, and so that that will cascade through the, the venture capital space, which is why as investors, this is a very risky place for us to play. You know, a lot of these crowdfunding platforms were to invest in startups. And the, the challenge is in order to be a successful investor in private equity, so venture capital and buyouts, 
you need dozens, if not hundreds of positions. So I have about 20% of my portfolio is in what we'll call private capital. So it's, it's leveraged buyout funds, it's venture capital, it's real assets, including real estate. So these are, these are fund of funds run by my old advisory firm. And I was just looking at this the other day. So I'm in six of their funds. Just one of their funds is in 30 underlying limited partnerships and are invested in 500 different deals. And so the model is based on most of them failing, but some doing very, very well. And so if you're investing in a startup and a crowdfunding platform, the better way to do it is at least do it in a portfolio. Maybe they're offering a portfolio. Maybe the sponsors are screening it, but you can't do private equity investing, venture capital and doing two or three deals because the numbers basically don't work against you because most won't work out. That's just the nature of venture capital. Very interesting. And these crowdfunding platforms, I'd consider them more an alternative investment. It's something that's not in the traditional space that people have traditionally parked their money in. Can you talk a bit about the role that alternative investments play in a portfolio? Well, the institutional investors, so endowments and foundations and pension plans are the largest participants in alternative investments. And the main reason, well, there's two. One is the expected returns are higher than the public market. Now, whether because these are set up as limited partnerships, you don't know for 10 or 12 years whether it's going to work out. But if the consultant that's advising that endowment puts a higher expected return, so let's say they say private equity will return 10% and the public market will return 7%. By allocating more to alternative investments where you know if you're a board member that you're a volunteer and if we can't figure out a way to get a higher return i mean there's that demand to do that otherwise you got to cut how much you're spending on scholarships and operating the university so by investing in alternative investments they have higher expected return and by the way we don't know if it works out for another 10 years as a board member yeah i'll do that because I don't have to make hard decisions now, we'll just hopefully it'll work out when I'm not on the board 10 years from now. And so that's, that's why you see pension plans in endowment and foundations move into alternative investments. Now, hopefully they will. I mentioned my investments in the private capital space. Like These are the top tier underlying funds. I mean, they, they have generated a 20% internal rate of return over the past decade. So it's been a very good period. But as individuals, it's hard to do because we can't invest in a hundred different startups. So we're, we're trying to select one and I'm saying don't select one or two. And so you maybe you have to step aside, but there are crowdfunding platforms on the alternative investment space that have set up funds where you get more transparency. So I've Fundrise is a solid platform. I personally have invested in deals on CrowdStreet. So there's some, the real estate's a little easier. I've mentioned art, which, you know, art is more speculative because it isn't cash flow, but that's another option. But it's a little more challenging on the private capital space. One platform we reviewed on our a premium podcast is Moonfair. So that seems better than most in terms of, but the idea is that you want as much diversification as you can. And you want some screening mechanism on those deals so that, and you get enough of them so that hopefully some of them will work out because most won't. Mm -hmm. And that's where you really, really need the diversification on the alternative investment side. So you do use some of these crowdfunding platforms. Yeah, I have one deal on CrowdStreet, mainly because, and this was one hotel property, but it happened, I, my hometown where I grew up with Cincinnati, 
so it was a, a hotel across the Ohio River in Kentucky. It's a two or three year deal. It seemed very secure. And so I invested. And, and there are those opportunities, but generally it's better to use a, a fund structure that there's multiple real estate deals in the fund or multiple private and venture capital deals in the fund. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, the fees are just high and they're just not, it's not easy to do. So most of mine, as I mentioned, is in the institutional funds that my investment, my former investment advisor runs, but they're institutional funds. And so they just made an exception for me because I helped start them, so help start the, the private investment program with yeah, FEG, FEG Advisors is the name of the firm. The fees definitely, I'd encourage people to definitely be very mindful of and be careful of things that might be hidden and not something they show you at face value there. You've talked about things like timber. You mentioned art. You also mentioned people are going towards these alternative investments because they offer higher expected returns. So for something like timber or art, how do you wrap your head around the expected returns for something like that? Art's really challenging because it's like figuring out what's the correct value of gold or the correct value of Bitcoin because it's there is no cash flow, it's pure speculation. And so when I invest in art, antiques is maybe 2% of my net worth. I'm just guessing, right? I mean, I've got a masterworks. I think I own three or four paintings. I don't know. I, I, I trust their ex. I mean, they sponsor a podcast. I trust their experts that they're picking paintings that they think will appreciate. But we don't know. I mean, we sold one. I had a Monet. I mean, I heard a Monet. So I invested that went and I had about a 9% internal rate of return. But it, it's, I would prefer cash flow. So timber is a little different. And, and I have invested in, I mean, there are timber REITs out there that you can invest in timber and, and timber benefits because the trees keep growing. But the problem with timber that makes it really challenging is the control and power that the mills have to choose from where they can buy. And, and so it's a, it's a challenging asset class, but there are a number of timber REITs. I think plum trees, I think plum tree, trees still around, but there's some timber REITs that you, that investor can invest in timber. So it's a publicly traded vehicle that invests in timber. I mean, there's agriculture that you can do on a private basis on a, something like a you know, farm together or acre trader. So there's private ways to do that, but you could also invest in, in Gladstone, which is a, an ag REIT. And so oftentimes there's a public vehicle that's publicly traded a security that we can get investments in alternative investments without having to go to a crowdfunding platform. Another example is a fund that I own is the Bearing Corporate Investors Fund. This ticker's MCI. This is a, a closed-end fund and they lend money to private companies. So they're sort of it's what's sometimes called mezzanine funding. So they're involved to some extent in, in the management or they can be or they get a, a little bit of an equity kick in terms of if the company does well. But it, this is a, a closed and fund that's yielding close to 10%, but it's public. So if I'm tired of, if I think the environment for private lending is just getting too sketchy, then I can always sell, which most of the private opportunities, you, you don't really get a chance to sell once you're in. And you're, you're seeing that in a, a something like BREIT, which is a real estate, a private real estate investment trust that Blackstone is sponsored. And it's done well performance-wise, but investors are trying to get out every quarter because they think it won't do as well going forward. And But there's a gate. They, they only limit so many people out or so much funds each month. So you get, you, bottom line, you have to be careful with alternative investments. See if you can find a public alternative. But if you do the private side, make sure that it's very, very diversified with a number of different deals. Thank you again for that. That was a really, really informative. I wanted to 
transition to the last section of our outline here, which is talking about living a good life. And it's something that TIP sort of, I feel like has talked more and more over the past couple of years. We recently partnered with William Green, who now hosts the Richer, Wiser, Happier series here on the feed here that everyone's listening on. And that series has been unbelievably popular with our audience, as many have come to realize one way or another that money isn't everything. So I wanted to you know, also mention that I think many people confuse investing with trying to chase returns and try and, you know, achieve the highest returns possible, outperform the market and brag to their neighbors that they uh, picked the right investments. But really, at the end of the day, we want to align our investments with our financial goals. So can you talk about how you think about aligning your investments with the life that you want to live? So. The term good life, or one of the first individuals to use that term was Aristotle, a Greek philosopher that lives several hundred years BC. And he, he wrote about it in Nicomachean Ethics. And he said the good life was a life of virtue. And virtue back then was very different. So probably the way that we would think of virtue now was if you swing a tennis racket or you swing a hit at a baseball, it's, it's hitting this sweet spot. It's really having the, the right amount at the right time in the right manner for the right reason. And it's often called the golden mean. And so when I think about the good life for me is just, just to have enough, not to spend my time fretting about the past and worrying about the future. And, and that can be very difficult to do with investing, but to realize that, that we have enough. And, and one of the terms I've used for years on our podcast is live like you're already retired. So I left my investment advisory firm 11 years ago. Didn't know what I was going to do. I called myself retired early, but reality is I needed to do something because 50 years is a long time to live off your investments. And my firm owed me money over the next seven years. I wasn't even sure they'd be around to do that. So I eventually launched money for the rest of us and done some other things. It's taken me a while, but the whole idea is that I'm living a life now that I don't want to retire from and I have enough. And so my investments. I don't, I'm not a growth investor. I focus on making sure my net worth grows each year after my expenditures. And part of that comes from my business. Part of it comes from in the, the yield or dividends, interest on my investments, but just maintain a sustainable life over the long term, but not focus so much in the future. The good life is just focusing on today and, and focusing on some of the things that I mentioned on this idea that an economy is more than GDP. It doesn't measure well-being and happiness. And the things that produce happiness are, are things you don't buy. It's health. Part of that you can buy. But, but friendships, you can't buy a community. You can't buy friendships. You can't necessarily buy the opportunity to be creative. You have to do that on your own. And so those are the things that make up the good life. It's these basic goods that are oftentimes, they don't have a financial price. And maybe they're not scarce because it's work we have to do on our own. What are some of the other things or themes you've found in your experience, you know, starting your own thing and living a, what I'll just call richer, wiser and happier life, you know, outside of just thinking about the money? Well, the, one of the things that I, you know, each year I'll, I'll have three words that I sort of focus on. So if I'm meditating, walking, whatever, and one of my words this year is well, once breathe. So just, just breathe, like just take a deep breath, don't overreact, just breathe. The other is time. And, and it's the idea that we have enough time and we spend so much time leaning into the future 
And we don't do things for their own sake. We do it because we want to to get somewhere else. We can, we're having some dinner with some friends tonight and we don't have to be there anywhere after the dinner. So we're not rushing to get dinner done so we can go somewhere else. Or we're not using this dinner so we can get a good connection for something else. We're going to dinner to just be with our friends, enjoy the time, connect with them. And that's with time, we can do that. It's We get into trouble when we're always trying to maximize our time or get maximum productivity, or we're trying to get something done so we can get something else, or we're doing something to achieve something else. We should spend more time just doing something because we enjoy it. And maybe it'll work out, but maybe it won't. We, we enjoy the process. Writing a book. A lot of people write a book. We well, don't write a book because you think it's going to sell a lot of copies. You can dream about it, but I've written a book and I published it. And turns out you write a book because you enjoy writing and because it's rare for them to become bestsellers. So we do, it's just trying to do things for their own sake, not because we're trying to reach some goal or achieve something else. More time just being and doing for the intrinsic value of it. I really love that you mentioned, you know, just truly living in the present. You and I, we're both in the U.S., and I think it's really easy to learn about concepts like compounding, learn about concepts like opportunity costs, and then you log on social media and see people posting their highlights and their wins. And then I've been to Europe a couple of times and I've been to uh, I know there's different cultures within Europe, but one of the things I kind of caught on to was like a lot of people that like businesses aren't open as long in some countries over there and they're opening later in the day and people are generally just more relaxed. They're enjoying life. And I think that's one thing that many people in the U.S. that maybe aren't aware of other cultures and the way other people maybe are uh, more acquainted mm -hmm. with, you know, just living in the present, and just relaxing. And I love that you just mentioned that. I mean, The Economist did a, a big profile on that a month or so ago where they, where they were comparing the U.S. economy and how we live and how we work so many hours to the Europe. And the reality is they, they've made that trade-off. They don't work as much in Europe. They don't produce as much in Europe. Let's go back to what was our definition of GDP? It was the value of what's produced that's produced by people and it's produced by technology. And they don't produce as much in Europe per person because they take more time off to spend time with family and friends and go hang out at the cafe. And that's their choice. And I actually think that's wonderful. And we can do that in our own lives. We do not have to work 60, 80 hours a week. And maybe you do it for a stretch, but seek to create a life where you don't have to do that because it's way more enjoyable. And that's why I say live like you're already retired. How would you live if you were retired and figure out, well, how do I live that today while still working and contributing to society, but not overworking? And I think another thing is that with money, you can always log into the account and then see the number. You see the progress. You can see the chart. And then, you know, with uh, living in the present and enjoying time with, you know, people you enjoy spending time with, it's uh, not as tangible. No, it's not, which is why you know, I look at my net worth once a month and my portfolio once a month, partly because I have I share my portfolio on our, our membership community. But you know, if I didn't do that, I'm not sure. Maybe I would do it once a quarter. But I don't look at it every day. And because life's way more fun not worrying about our investments every day. So, which is another advantage of investing in index funds and other more diversified investments because you don't have to worry about whether NVIDIA is going to hit its number this month or you know exceed its earnings estimates or miss it and plummet 30%. You do that if you're investing in individual stocks, you have to do that because you're trying, you're competing against the consensus and everyone out there. And 
I would rather invest in a way that I don't have to compete and win to be successful. That's why we spend so much time on the drivers. I don't have to compete for dividend. I don't have to compete for earnings growth if I am in a diversified fund, an index fund. And so it's easier to invest that way when the performance drivers are not being successful as an investor isn't depending on beating other people in winning. Wonderful, David. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this is a big pleasure for me to have you back on the show and hope to bring you back again in the future. It's always fun learning from you, that's for sure. And you always bring a new perspective that feels very fresh. So please give the handoff to our audience on where they can learn more about you and any other resources you'd like to share, please. Sure. So our main website for our free podcast, as well as some investment free investment guides is moneyfortherestofus.com. We also have a new website called assetcamp.com, C-A-M-P.com. And that that's really a place to that has these tools to analyze stock indexes and, and index funds, the underlying drivers. You know, a lot of the mathematics that I shared in this episode come from assetcamp.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, David. Really, really appreciate it. Great. It's great to be here, Clay. Thanks. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.